Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nicholas C., the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Professor Hag about his new book, The Eastern Frontier, Limits of Empire in Late Antique and Early Medieval Central Asia, published by Abi Torres. Rob, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Nick. Yeah, and um, Professor Hag received his BA in Geography uh, in uh in Geography and History from DePaul University in 1999. Uh, his MA is in Modern Middle Eastern and North African Studies from the University of Michigan, which he earned in 2002. And he also earned his PhD in Near Eastern Studies, also from the University of Michigan in 2010. And correct me if I'm wrong, uh, this book, The Eastern Frontier, is actually, it comes from that dissertation that you did uh, while at the University of Michigan. Is that correct? Uh, yes, in, in a sense. Uh, so my uh, PhD dissertation was called uh, The Gate of Iron, The Making of the Eastern Frontier. Uh, and it was a study of, of this kind of front, Central Asian frontier of primarily, in that case, the, the Abbasid Caliphate, uh, working very closely with a, a collection of medieval geographical texts, mostly written in Arabic. Um, and that took a much more kind of thematic approach. Uh, I had a chapter on, for example, types of fortifications and a chapter on numismatics and, and things like that. Um, the book, in contrast, uh, takes a much more kind of chronological approach. Uh, so it is a very different um, uh, project, even though they both started with the same, you know, in the same place. Uh there's not much of the dissertation left in the book. So uh, in doing the research for the book, you've, you've kind of turned it into a new project. Um, you mentioned that in the dissertation, you were working primarily with uh, travel texts or geographical texts. Um, what kind of new materials did you bring when you were doing the, the postdoctoral research for the book? Well, there's a lot of different things. I, was, I, I New materials I had to bring in there. Um, one big thing, change in the book, for example, is that I, I felt that in order to approach this topic, uh, I needed to step back from the Islamic era and include, for example, a whole chapter on uh, this frontier of Central Asia uh, during the Sasanian period. Um, and that required me uh, to look at, obviously, all the sources we have available for the Sasanian Empire, uh, to get involved in uh the, the different kinds of numismatics and um, you know the, the kind of limited sources we have for uh, late antique Central Asia for uh, you know the Hephthalites and Turks and Sogdians you know where we do have very limited uh, number of sources uh, available to us. Uh, so bringing those materials in, I also tried to incorporate more archaeology, though maybe not as successfully as I hoped to, um, to kind of fill this out. But but. You know, the main thing was moving away from just this kind of uh, these geographical sources, bringing in more of the chronicles and local histories and things like this uh, in order to uh, focus more on this this chronological narrative of the development of the frontier. And before we get into the, the, the meat of the book, really, I wanted to ask you, how did you why did you get interested in Central Asia, specifically in medieval Central Asia? Um, was this your original research focus or, you know, could you, could you describe a little bit about how you came to this topic? Because it's, it's, you know, there's an argument here specifically about the Eastern frontier and its role um, in these, these bigger empires. So that tells me that maybe you were once looking at the history of Baghdad or something like that. Well, I often say when people ask me how I got interested in, medieval Central Asia, that it was really a series of accidents uh, over a course of, of, you know, probably about, you know, over the course of my, my uh, you know, kind of academic career. Um, 
I started off, you know, when I got interested in history, I'd always been interested in history, but when I, I started to major in history, for example, I knew I didn't necessarily want to work on Western history. And I kind of shopped around, took a few classes here and there and uh, uh, got pulled towards the Islamic uh, world as a result, um, primarily the result of a, a study abroad opportunity as an undergrad uh, to Morocco. Uh, when I did my master's degree, I was working on more kind of 18th, 19th century North African uh, history. Uh, I was working with Juan Cole at Michigan and um, I wrote my thesis on uh, the Mokdis revolt in Anglo-Egyptian Sudan and was very interested in the, the role of the slave trade in there. Uh, but along that way, I met uh, who, uh, uh, Michael Bonner, who became my PhD advisor. Um, and uh, he had me come in as I was learning Arabic and start reading uh, medieval texts with him. Uh, particularly, our, our first reading course was reading these uh, geographical texts, and uh, these texts are, you know, not travelers' tales, but uh, some of our, our administrative geographies. Some of them are more what we might think of, of you know. Uh, uh, humanist geographies, right? That talking about uh, different places and characteristics of the people, and and um, uh, you'd find there and certain sites you might see and things like this. And read, getting engaged in the text, right? Really pulled me into uh, uh, earlier and earlier periods. And when I started the PhD, I really wanted to work on uh, these materials, and uh, I was was thinking of working on something more kind of Baghdad focused, more kind of central Islamic lands focused. Uh, but as I was doing my coursework and doing readings, I started getting really interested in the breakdown of the Abbasid empire. And it's in the East in places like Khorasan and Central Asia, where you're finding these uh, autonomous dynasties that start kind of falling away uh, from the empire at its fringes. And I got really interested in this dynamic and looking at these groups and their relationship uh, to the political centers in Iraq. Uh, and that's what pulled me towards these questions of the frontier. And it also didn't you know, hurt that um, uh, my advisor uh, uh, had worked quite a bit on frontiers himself. He published uh, quite a bit on uh, the Arab Byzantine frontier. Right. So this is and, the kind of interest that we could get get involved in. Yeah, absolutely. And and it, it really comes through in this book. I mean, it, it seems to be the main argument of the book is is bringing this geographical approach to the eastern frontier. And what I wanted to ask about, because this comes up in our in, in the first chapter in which you're trying to conceptualize um, the eastern frontier in this medieval geography is um, first, if you could explain what this term shatter zone means and also, if you could talk to briefly, um, you know, it, it seems like uh, Borderlands, the, the history of Borderlands has become um, a, a really popular or, or a topic, um, whether in modern history, but, um, and this could just be my ignorance, I haven't heard much of, of people looking at medieval history using these kind of Borderland approaches. So, is, is, is this the novelty of the book? Is, there, is this what you're bringing to the table? And I'm wondering if where you, where you pulled this, this um, kind of thinking about, about borderlands um, and decided to bring it, bring it to the, the medieval, medieval history of Central Asia um, in order to tell us a, a more compelling story about, um, about the, the Abbasids and, and I, even the Sasanians, I think, um, you know, we get a really rich history, uh, but it's it's a history that might be unfamiliar to even experts uh, who have have spent time studying um, these different empires. So, uh, could you talk a little bit about what inspired you to to develop this um, these these theories about um, how um, the frontier kind of operated in within these empires? Yeah. So there is quite a bit of scholarship out there about medieval borderlands, medieval frontiers. Uh, but a lot of it is, is kind of situated in, in certain places. There's also a lot on ancient borders and frontiers, right? There's a lot on uh, the Roman frontiers, for example, and, and working on the dissertation, that was something I had to uh, read very closely, right, uh, as, as a point of comparison. But you find things, you know, topics like, for example, uh, uh, you know, medieval Spain, Right is a, a place where there's a lot of work on borderlands. People studying, uh, you know, the kind of competition between uh, Christian and Islamic kingdoms, 
right? Uh, as um, uh, the Reconquista, uh, uh, though people don't always like that term, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, was going forward, right? So places like that, uh, you know, in, in certain locations, there are these these uh, great studies where people have really effectively uh, approached this. Um, and I wanted to kind of bring some of this to a frontier that had received uh, less attention. Right. In general, uh, the eastern part of the Islamic world, uh, the eastern part of the Iranian world in general, if we bring in the Sasanian uh, uh, era too, uh, receives a lot less attention. Part of that is because the uh, this we don't have a lot of sources from the area. Uh, we have to rely on sources that are written in Iraq, uh, sources that are written not only remote in geography, but also remote in time. Right. So when you're looking at the chapters, for example, in my book about the um, uh, Arab conquest of Central Asia, uh, I'm relying on a lot of chronicles that are written uh, 200, 300 years after the event, right? Or at least compiled, you know, 200, 300 years after the events they're, they're discussing. Uh, so this puts a lot of kind of uh, uh, challenges there, right? So I'm trying to look at an area of the world and a period of time that's not very well studied bringing these, uh, some of these ideas that are developed uh, for other frontiers, for other borderlands, uh, you know, to the fore here. Now, with that in mind, uh, Central Asia is obviously uh, its own unique thing, right? You can't just import uh, theories about the Roman Empire or theories about medieval Spain uh, and put them directly on uh, uh, medieval Central Asia, right? Uh, and one of the things you brought up the term shatter zone, and I think one of the things that that's very important that needs to be pushed forward is that the way we kind of uh, imagine a frontier, right, doesn't quite work uh, for a place like Central Asia, a place that is divided up by very high rugged mountains, divided uh, up by very uh, harsh and dry uh, deserts, right? That you have uh, these kind of oases and these urban centers that a lot of times are, are isolated from each other uh, by that very geography. So we don't have the kind of, say, uh, image of, of, you know, think of, think of an animated uh, map, for example. We've all seen like an animated GIF map of, of something like the Mongol Empire expanding, Right or westward expansion in the U.S. and you see a blob that just kind of evenly moves out across a, a, a space. Right, that's not really what will work in a place like uh, uh, Central Asia, in which what you're really probably seeing are, are little nodes, little dots that are being captured or being brought under uh, a certain kind of political authority, uh, usually uh, uh, brought under uh, you know. Political authority means they're paying taxes, right, to an empire. Um, but but it's not this kind of broad uh, uh, stretch. It would be these little kind of places that are isolated from each other. The other problem is a lot of times when we talk about borderland studies and uh, uh, frontier studies, uh, we get these theories about the mixing of different cultures and different peoples at the fringes of empires or at the places where uh, uh, two different states interact, right, and meet. Uh, but the kind of uh, uh, divided nature of the geography of the region uh, means that there is a lot of smaller varieties of groups that are interacting, that are overlapping with each other. And you don't get that same kind of uh, uh, melding of the borderland that, say, uh, you know, a lot of studies today of, uh, of say, the, the U.S.-Mexico border or, um, you know, a lot of these ideas came out of studies of the German-French border uh, in the 19th century and things like that, uh, that, that you don't get that same kind of sense. Uh, so it takes, uh, you, you're required to, like, look at these theories but make your own, you know, kind of a, a, a adaptions to meet the local uh, terrain. And so, um, thank you for that. Um, when you're looking at, at, at this region, you've kind of divided um, the kind of eastern frontier into three sections that kind of run throughout the course of the book, whether we're looking at the Sasanian period or um, the Abbasids or even after, uh, which are Khorasan, Transoxiana, and Tukhoristan. Uh The last one, which I have heard way less of, um, could you briefly define those regions geographically and then um, tell us, do you, uh, you're looking at basically the end of, I think, the 6th century 
up until about the 10th or 11th century. Do you see that these are fixed um, geographical spaces that, that are recognizable throughout these sources, or are they also kind of in flux throughout this period? Yeah. What's, that's a, you know, a very good question. It seems like they're easy questions to say what, you know, how do you define certain provinces of a, uh, of an empire or a region. Right. Um, but, uh, it's never so, you know, uh, uh, neat and clean, right. And medieval scholars and modern scholars debate a lot about, uh, the uh, precise boundaries of each of these regions. So what I've done for this this project to keep a, a level of consistency here um, is I've defined Khorasan uh, as the eastern province of the Sasanian Empire. And I put its limits kind of uh, uh, at the kind of typical extent of the Sasanian Empire. So for me, uh, that is uh, kind of the, the area south of the Oxus, right, which is Typically, what you're going to find are a lot of people who divide the region between, you know, what's south of the Oxus and what's north of the Oxus, right? What's what's uh, uh, Khorasan and what's, you know, Transoxiana. Uh, but here, uh, I see also an important division that, that Khorasan maybe does not extend all uh, as far east as, say, greater Khorasan as a province of the Abbasid Caliphate uh uh, would extend, right? So I stop it at the Morgab River uh, around this, the important uh, city of Marvel Rud. Um, so pretty much kind of at the border of uh, modern Afghanistan around there, maybe a little further east. Uh, Tokharistan then is pretty close to ancient Bactria, right? Centered on the city of Balkh. Uh, and it would be the area kind of uh, north of the Hindu Kush uh, and actually extends kind of over the Oxus a little bit uh, and comes up to the area where there's the kind of mountains, uh, the high mountains that uh, uh, are, are difficult to pass and make a kind of natural border. Uh, then Transoxiana is, is very, you know, kind of easier to define as those areas north of the Oxus River. Um, but the northern limits of what counts as Transoxiana uh, are, are typically politically defined, right? So in the early Islamic period, Transoxiana uh, extends as far as the reach of the caliphate, for example, or its successor states. And so what does, so as far as I understand, um, the majority of the book is looking at how these frontiers were changing um, based on what was happening within the the uh, Abbasid Caliphate. So to get into that, could you briefly describe what Central Asia and these specifically these three regions that you define um, look like at the end of the Sasanian period? And then how does this, whether, do we see any kind of change um, locally based on what's happening, um, you know, further West or uh, further East um, in China? Mm-hmm. I know that um, there are Turks coming into the region around this time. So can you give us an, a sense for what's happening on this Eastern frontier um, as, you know, on the eve of, of the uh, Arab conquest. So to, to put it very simply, um, you think of uh, uh, Khorasan as being that kind of eastern province of the Sasanian Empire uh, that was fairly consistently, though not always, under control of the empire. Uh, I start off the chapter on the Sasanians with the uh, kind of great Hephthalite victory over uh, the Shah and Shah Perus I back in the 5th century. And this, uh, you know, kind of, uh, there is a period around this in which uh, Khorasan falls out of Sasanian control. They recapture it. It seems to be, you know, kind of very loosely in the empire at times. Uh, but the argument I would make is that it's probably more uh, important to think of certain urban nodes as being within the empire uh, uh, and then kind of putting a frontier up to uh, defend against uh, uh, forces beyond. Throughout the Sasanian period, there's a series of peoples who kind of come into the region, right? Uh, the kind of most prominent, important, that the largest figures who are going to play a role into the um, uh, Islamic era would be, of course, the Hephthalites, uh, uh, an Iranian uh, nomadic group uh, who come to dominate uh, Tukharistan and Transoxiana. Then after the Turks arrive, uh, kind of bring themselves, focus themselves more in Tukharistan. 
in Transoxiana, you have uh, uh, a number of uh, uh, Sogdian city-states, right? The Sogdians being kind of uh, better known uh, popularly for their role in the uh, quote-unquote Silk Road trade. Uh, uh, but you have cities like uh, Bukhara and Samarkand being the most famous as uh, kind of autonomous kingdoms that are under some kind of Turkish authority. We're not sure what that means. Some people have made arguments that for example, that the Turkic presence in Sogdiana uh, might have really just been kind of a military mercenary type of uh, uh, arrangement, um, but some kind of connection there. So you have uh, uh, really at the at the outset of this a kind of imperial zone in Khorasan, uh, and then beyond that, some kind of loosely you know, construed uh, uh, kingdoms, Hephthalite, Turkish, Sogdian, uh, that are uh, on the fringes. Most of the book, then, the bulk of the book, has to deal with the kind of replacement of the Sasanian Empire with the Islamic Caliphate and the process of expanding that Caliphate into Tukharistan and Transoxiana and bringing these regions into a kind of imperial framework and what that does to the region, how that transforms the, the, the frontier. And the first thing that, uh, um, after the Arab conquest, the first thing that happens basically um, is the caliphate uses this region to line their coffers, right? Like they, they, they show very little interest in, in claiming these lands, but they're interested in, in kind of looting the place and then uh, using it to build up their treasury. Is that right? Or am I simplifying that too much? Maybe a slight simplification. Um, one of the things that's important to remember is that uh, in the early years of the caliphate, the Arab and Muslim population across the entire empire uh, is very thin, right? Uh, they are a, a kind of extreme minority ruling over, uh, you know, this large, vast empire, uh, a, you know, very diverse empire, right? And when you look at the conquest of Iran, for example, which the conquest of Central Asia is an extension of, um, early on, uh, you have forces that are stationed in two uh, newly found cities in Iraq of Basra and Kufa. Uh, and forces are sent out from these cities on an annual basis, and they tend to kind of return back to Iraq after uh, a campaign season. Shortly after first appearing in, in Central Asia, um, you do have the establishment of a Arab garrison in the city of Marv in modern uh, Turkmenistan. Uh, but this is also a very small uh, uh, garrison. Uh, and it seems like as people are, are conquering regions, uh, that they are returning now to Marv uh, at the end of a, a campaign season. So you have regular raids, for example, into uh, Sardiana, you know, uh, to cities like Bukhara, you have raids into Tukharistan, reaching Balk. They come, they uh, demand submission, which means payment of tribute, uh, uh, payment of a tax, uh, and then they leave and go back to these these kind of centers uh, where they can kind of focus themselves. And there's a number of reasons why this is happening, why why they aren't uh, kind of settling more broadly, but the most important being uh, that they are a very small population uh, uh, comparative to the people they are uh, interacting with and conquering. So over time, though, this presence kind of spreads out a little bit more uh, and probably more importantly, uh, 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 more a greater part of the local population will convert to Islam, uh, you know, and, and the kind of culture of the empire will start expanding into these frontier zones. Uh, but initially, yes, there, there's there's little that can be done other than a kind of uh, uh, attack, demand tribute, demand taxes, then leave, and then come back the next year and ask for the taxes again. And as far as I can understand, there's there's a, a sort of culture of resistance, right? Especially beyond um, the inner part of Khorasan, as this um, empire moves further northeast. Um, and at, at one point, I think in the book, you even referred to um, geographers talking about this region being a sort of wild, wild east. Of course, I don't think that was the term they would have used, but... Um, 
Yeah, <laughs> and I, I'm wondering, um, um, could you could you explain that a little bit more? You know, I was compelled by the this idea of the wild wild east because um, you get some of these stories. For instance, um, um, Musa's taking of the city of Termez. I, I wonder if a little a bit of this was exaggerated or. Uh, what are we really seeing in these sources, which were a couple hundred years after the said events? Um, and why do we end up with this image of, of um, you know, these these different regions as, as kind of the wild frontier? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. And, and um, first of all, uh, I think traditionally there's been a, a reading of the conquest of Central Asia uh, that says it. it describes it as following a process of uh, capture, rebellion, recapture, right? And read uh, these uh, resistances by local uh, powers as a form of rebellion against Arab rule. And this has often been used uh, in the past uh, to kind of make an almost nationalist uh, argument that the the people of Eastern Iran, of of Central Asia, uh, you know, stood up against uh, empire. My take on it in the book is a little bit more to, to, to think about the realities of what the Arabs were doing uh, in these conquests, that it wasn't really rebellion. Uh, they left, right? They didn't make a permanent settlement in all these places they conquered. They would reconsolidate in these kind of uh, central garrisons, right? What do you do in the meantime when, when nobody's there, right? Uh, uh, you don't pay taxes unless somebody comes up and asks for them, right? Now, a second aspect of this is that uh, whereas, say, the Sasanian Empire, uh, the political structures, the military structures of that were um, kind of completely destroyed by the caliphate or co-opted more appropriately by the caliphate. And that's kind of one of the arguments I make of what makes Khorasan different from Tukharistan and, and Transoxiana is that uh, the Arabs are able to uh, latch on to this kind of imperial geography uh, uh, of the Sasanian Empire and employ that, right? And people are used to this kind of structure. When you get out to uh, Tokharistan and uh, uh, Transoxiana, uh, there are competing kind of sources of authority uh, that are, are trying to um, claim this area as well. So in Tokharistan, you have, uh, you know, if, if the Arabs come to Balkh, for example, and they demand taxes and they demand tribute and they, they go away, um, Maybe the next week, uh, some Hephthalites come down from the, the mountains and uh, demand taxes as well, right? Is that rebellion? Is that resistance, right? It, it's, uh, uh, it's just a kind of a reality of being in a, a frontier zone with uh, kind of weak political control. When you get to Sogdiana, you have these uh, city-states that are caught behind, uh, between the caliphate, which is trying to expand but, but not able to really make that uh, leap across the river and secure uh, a position for you know uh, several decades against a, uh, a Turkic Kaikanate, uh, which is ex- coming down from the north and it's having its going through its own kind of political struggles. And uh, one of the things I wanted to make clear in uh, uh, the book is that you can follow the kind of uh, you know highs and lows of um, uh, the Turks. Uh, and match that up with moments of success and moments of kind of uh, retreat uh, in the Arabs, that uh, there was these kind of alternative um, uh, empires, right? Uh, especially when you talk about the Turks, a, a steppe empire, uh, that were competing for the space as well. It wasn't uh, the caliphate kind of going beyond the borders of the Sasanian Empire into some kind of, uh, uh, you know, free land, uh, as I think some people have imagined it. But then um, the political situation in in the heartland, the kind of western part of the the, uh, the new caliphate, also impacts uh, what happens on the border, right? So um, with the I w- I'd like to do you to go into a little bit detail about this, but the second fitna, um, what is that and how does this change uh, the way that the the rule looks on the eastern frontier, um, you know, um, is, especially as we we move along, and I and I want to focus specifically on um, who who becomes the problem. Is it the locals or is it these rulers who are being you know 
being sent out to these regions and then kind of get a, as far as I can tell, get a sense of power. And they're actually the ones that are, they're not operating in the interest of, of the empire as a whole. Is that right? Well, that's that's a bit of the story, right? So um, one of the problems that the uh, uh, Caliphate faces early on in these conquests is that shortly after uh, you have the first kind of Arab incursions into um, uh, Khorasan, not even quite yet into uh, Tokharistan or or, uh, Transoxiana in any real way, uh, the Caliphate falls into a a period of civil war. called the first fitna, uh, which people might be familiar with this. This is the kind of uh, where the whole narrative of, of the Sunni-Shi split is often, you know, described as starting, even though I disagree with that, uh, you know, but it's, it's a, there's a fight over kind of succession of the caliphate itself. Okay. Um, and this attracts a lot of attention. And if you think of these troops kind of rotating back to Iraq, all the time, they're going back and instead of going to conquer more, they are staying local to fight the civil war. Then a few decades later, as things are you know kind of calming down and there's uh, preparations for another big push into uh, Transoxiana, a second civil war, the second fitna breaks down, um, really over questions about whether or not the caliphate would become a hereditary title or not. Uh, and this again, pulls a lot of attention. A lot of people who are involved in the conquest have to go back towards the center and fight what ends up being, you know, more than a decade long uh, struggle over the succession of of the caliphate. At this time, uh, one of the things you find in these kind of distant provinces that are very remote from the political centers is that the Arab authorities who stuck around uh, could act with a lot of, uh, uh, you know, independence. Um, and you have figures like Abdullah ibn Qasim, who I uh, write quite a bit about here, uh, who seizes the governorship of Khorasan uh, by force and finds himself fighting uh, with his fellow Arabs over control of the province. Uh, and, and, you know, this kind of push to consolidate his own authority in a period of kind of larger political insecurity uh obviously is detrimental to expanding the frontiers and conquering further. And this is where you get, uh, Nick, you brought up uh, Abdullah's son, uh, Musa, uh, who towards the end of the second fitna uh, is said to have grabbed the uh, treasury of Marv and fled to Sogdiana uh, looking for uh, uh, help and eventually um, conquers the city of Termez, a very important uh, crossing point between uh, on the Oxus in, in northern Tukharistan, um, and ends up kind of uh, setting up a kingdom outside the reach of the empire for about a dozen years. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's and, and this is a story that kind of keeps going on throughout the Umayyad period. Uh, there's a lot of conflict between different uh, uh, Arab tribal groupings, different rivalries uh, over pl- positions of political authority, uh, access to spoils, things like this, uh, which challenge uh, uh, conquests and challenge the kind of political order uh, that the empire is trying to establish uh, here on the distant frontier and this this leaves a, a kind of lasting impact um, on the region as a whole but eventually the Umayyads do um, more or less take control at least of the these urban centers right they make it all the way to Sogdiana I'm not sure what their presence is like in Tukharistan or um, whether or not they they kind of rule through vassals or what um, you know but, but but by the end of their their rule, um, even as all of these kind of revolts are going on, they do get a stronger footing uh, in the region. Is that right? It, it, it comes and goes, right? Um, you know, uh, throughout the, say, early 8th century. But the most interesting thing is that uh, their authority is always kind of contested in this region, even among the Arabs. So it ends up being in... Uh, uh, the mid eighth century that uh, the revolution that ends up overthrowing the Umayyads and brings the Abbasids to, to power begins in Marv begins in Khorasan, uh, uh, you know, building out of these kind of animosities uh, towards uh, certain aspects of Umayyad rule. 
And what what kind of impact does this leave on the center? You know, um, in in a lot of modern history, especially when we're looking at kind of the decline of empires um, or even the the struggle of empires on the edge, we see that this automatically ends up coming back to the center and kind of haunting it in a way. Do we see something similar happening um, in in Baghdad? Um, and also, what does this tell us about maybe center-peripheral relations uh, in the Umayyad um, empire or about center-peripheral relations just in general? So in the book, I've tried to focus more on the narrative of what's happening in these frontier regions. But uh, the reality is that a lot of these uh, kind of frontier populations and the kind of issues they bring with them end up becoming the center in the Abbasid era. So after the Abbasid revolution, uh, you know, the, the, the army that brought them to power is coming from the East. Uh, so when Baghdad is built, uh, a lot of people from Khorasan and from uh, Tokharistan and, and, and uh, Transoxiana uh, find their way into the centers of imperial power, right? That they are relocated uh, uh, to Iraq uh, and they gain uh, great positions of authority. For example, one of the, the most famous families of um, uh, uh, advisors to the caliphs, the Barmakids, uh, are originally from Balkh. Uh, they were the uh, uh, you know kind of uh, caretakers of a uh, Buddhist shrine uh, there in Tukharistan. Later on, when there's an Abbasid civil war at the beginning of the ninth century, uh, the empire does kind of divide again between Iraq and Khorasan. And it's the Khorasani candidate, al-Makmun, who ends up winning a victory again. And once again, you have a transfer of people from the east uh, who come uh, to the centers of uh, power in Iraq for a time. Uh, So these these issues do kind of, you you do see at some point uh, a movement of people from uh, the east uh, back towards that political center uh, at these crucial uh, moments and does that does that echo the experience of this whether it's the Sasanians or the Umayyads um, in general as they move further east? This is th- is this a recurring pattern that we see, or is this something unique about the eastern frontier? I think in the way it develops in the Abbasid period, it, it is fairly unique in the way that uh, uh, these people from the east are coming on a regular basis to become uh, to the political center. And it's, it's accelerated in a certain way uh, in the Abbasid era, for example, by the employment of Turkish slave soldiers who are being brought from uh, this frontier uh, to the political center to become, you know, the, the kind of core of an, an Abbasid military. Uh, we don't see a similar kind of movement, for example, of large numbers of people coming from other, you know, kind of stretches of the empire in the same kind of way. Uh, but you do see a lot of mobility, especially among elites. So you can follow governors, for example, who are uh, relocated to kind of different provinces with, with some set of regularity. I'm glad you brought up the, um, the question of the, the Abbasid revolution, because as far as I can tell, this is kind of one of the more uh, compelling parts of the book, because you show that by looking at at the frontier with, with this kind of uh, focused lens, that Suddenly, the Abbasid uh, revolution, which is, um, you know, has has um, p- plays a huge role in the history of the region, um, is not this kind of isolated event, but rather fits into the general trend of, of revolt that was happening at that time. Um, could you talk more to that and 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 give us some insight into what's what's new about your take on the on on the Abbasid revolution and how does it how do you differentiate yourself from uh, kind of more traditional historiographical um, takes on on the Abbasid uh, revolution so a lot of the scholarship that's been done on say early Islamic Khorasan a lot of the focus has been about this question of the Abbasid revolution uh, who made up the army? Uh, who was the kind of constituency that uh, this uh, revolutionary movement was talking uh, to? Uh, what were the motivations? What were the specific grievances? Uh, and a lot of it comes down to fights about whether or not uh, the Abbasid revolutionary uh, movement was primarily uh, 
uh, disgruntled Arabs or disgruntled Iranians uh, or some kind of mix, right? And uh, uh, how specifically they were working together. So one thing I did here was to kind of take a step back and uh, in the chapter uh, kind of on the revolution, uh, I talk about a, a lot of this kind of historiography and the major uh, themes, the major trends that have been there uh, over the decades. Uh, but then want to take a step back and look at a number of revolts that are happening before and after it, or maybe not revolts, rebellions, uh, you know, disturbances in the region um, that are happening around it. And trying to situate the Abbasid revolution uh, in this uh, Context. So, what you find uh, when you look more broadly at these revolts is that uh, very often um, we can't think of people kind of uh, uh, joining up because of these type of identity issues. They're not uh, Arab revolts. They're not Iranian revolts. Uh, they're not Muslim revolts versus non-Muslim revolts. Uh, you find a lot of kind of fluidity and a lot of movement, and this is where maybe you see uh, the closest thing to this kind of. Uh, um, you know, what we expect to see in a frontier situation of people of different and diverse backgrounds living in close proximity, uh, coming to have some shared interests and shared uh, ideas. Uh, so looking at these kind of revolutions more broadly, uh, it, that it makes it even harder to, in a sense, point the finger at one group and saying they're the ones who wanted to overthrow uh, the Umayyads. No, it's probably easier to point a finger at one group and say they probably didn't want uh, everybody else did in a sense. And so is this experience of kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, regime change um, in in the capital, um, is your argument that this is ultimately leading to a, a more unified um, identity on the periphery? Um, is this when we start to see um, something that we can call like the culture of Islamic Central Asia, or is it still a bit too early to um, to identify that? So in the Abbasid era, you finally have this idea of a greater Khorasan developing, uh, of Khorasan, Tukharistan, and Transoxiana together as a kind of administrative space. Uh, and where it really kind of formulates is in the development of these uh, autonomous um, provincial dynasties uh, in the ninth century. Uh, the first being the Tahrids, uh, the Tahrids being a family of uh, most likely Arabized Iranians uh, who were very close with the Abbasid movement from the beginning uh, and held important positions in Abbasid Khorasan. Uh, they are granted a kind of a, a, a autonomous uh, governorship over the entire region uh, after they are, are defeated and removed uh, from power by a movement coming out of Sistan known as the Safarids. Uh, uh, the Samanids come in and, and kind of take over this role of, of, of ruling Greater Khorasan. And the Samanids are associated with this return to Iranian rule. It's the under the Samanids that new Persian emerges as a language of the court and a language of government. Um, that uh, things like the Shahnameh are being produced, that a kind of Islamic Iranian identity uh, is being formulated uh, at the kind of uh, uh, you know upper levels of rulership. Okay? Part of my argument here is that the experience of the Arab conquests um, and the early Abbasid era uh, in bringing what were very distinct regions together, right, under a shared uh, uh, political, cultural, religious identity over time, uh, is not what it creates is not so much a it creates a new kind of cultural political identity. Uh, sorry if I'm rambling a little bit here. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of working these things out right now uh, as we're talking. Um, and one of the arguments I'd, I'd like to kind of push even further, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to kind of formulate this out now in, in, in some other projects, uh, is that what the Samanids, for example, bring is not necessarily a, a return to an older idea of Iranian kingship, but they are producing something new that's distinctly uh, Islamic Iranian, right? Uh, they are replacing uh, older political authorities uh, that uh, had kind of weathered 
the initial uh, Arab conquests. Uh, groups, for example, like the Bukhar Kudas in Bukhara, uh, uh, they lose their political authority sometime around uh, uh, the rise of the Samanids, right? Uh, uh, that This is when they kind of disappear from, from the scene. Um, and the Samanids make Bukhara their, their capital. Uh, so this is a, a, a this is the kind of, in my sense, a culmination. The Samanids are, are not a kind of return to Iranian kingship, but the culmination of the kind of conquest process. And so, is this um, where does where do we get this um, narrative about the Samanids returning to an older style of Iranian rule? Is this is this um, the Samanids themselves pushing this narrative in order to legitimize their rule, or is something else happening? Well, if we look at the court culture, they definitely were embracing a uh, you know kind of local Iranian identity, right? They um, they they bring Persian back as a, a language of of the court and of literature and culture. Um, they promote the translation of uh, many texts from Arabic into Persian, uh, you know things like this. Uh, they have a most likely fabricated genealogy that connects them back to the uh, Sasanian emperors. Uh, uh, you know, these type of things that, that, uh, 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 you know, are def- there, there, there's definitely more of a promotion of a uh, Iranian identity. But I think the crucial thing is that in the context of Sogdiana, Tokharistan, of Khorasan, uh, it's not necessarily the local culture entirely. Right. It's one that's being constructed and being uh, uh, in response to uh, the kind of recent political history, the Islamization of the region, um, a number of factors kind of playing out here. And it seems like we can't ignore the fact that, um, you know, the, the caliphate itself or sorry, the, the Abbasid caliphate is also um, moving forward in, in the frontier during this time. How can we explain their their relative success, especially if we're looking in relation to their successors um, in the region? Is it because these new dynasties are propping up? I mean, where's the cause and effect here? Um, or is it because they themselves have foundations on the, the frontier? Does this somehow make them more capable um, to expand into the region? Yeah, early on, the Abbasids are able to make kind of great expansion. So, so the Abbasids come to power in 750, and 751 is the kind of famous Battle of Talas, in which uh, uh, an Abbasid army faces off against a, a army of the uh, Tang Empire of China, or representatives of both sides. Uh, you know, uh, there, there's possibilities that this is a proxy uh, battle, right? Um, so this is a, a you know that there's a, a huge kind of leap forward initially. By the Samanid period, that dynamic is changing quite a bit. So you'll see in, in, in my book, for example, I, I spent a lot of time talking about the kind of um, rise of the Turkic military class within the Samanid Empire, right? And the competition between uh, you know a, a local Iranian, uh, for lack of a better term, nobility, people who could claim to have uh, kind of political authority going back all the way to the pre-Islamic period. Um, you know, on the local level, uh, finding their positions being uh, given over to this new Turkic military elite. Uh, and this grows a kind of a competition. And eventually, the downfall of the Samanids, uh, they find themselves uh, in a vice between the Ghaznavids, who started off as their uh, Turkish uh, slave soldiers, um, uh, set up a, a, um, uh, a state in uh, modern Afghanistan, uh, and then the Karakhanids. Uh, 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 Turkic people coming down from the steppe who had uh, supposedly uh, converted to Islam on their own, not as a result of conquest, but uh, uh, of their own volition. And they come in and end up conquering uh, the kind of Transoxianan part of the Samanid Empire. So the, the, the frontier really does collapse uh, in the Samanid period, at the end of the Samanid period. Uh, and then from there, it's it's uh, not long before uh, the Seljuks are going to come down and um, uh, completely kind of uh, sweep across Iran and Iraq and, and most of the uh, uh, Muslim world. 
And prior to the the fall of the Samanids, what kind of relationship did they have with with the empire more generally? Are they able to succeed so so quickly because of their their kind of um, position on the on the edge of the empire? Um, how does the does the empire force them to um, pay some kind of tribute? Are they even able to um, prior to of course prior to the the Karakhanids uh, coming down? south well, well the the abbasids were in a pretty bad uh position by the time the samanids came to power uh they had the caliphs themselves had become little more than kind of uh figureheads uh in many ways uh and uh, uh much of their authority had been taken over by uh, uh their military class uh and the samanids biggest rivals uh in Iran, for example, are, are the Buyids, uh, who were uh, uh, from Dalem, uh, Dalemites from uh, the kind of southwestern coast of the Caspian Sea, uh, who had come and conquered uh, uh, Baghdad, uh, along with um, uh, most of western Iran, uh, and also had, had kind of made a claim to this kind of pre-Islamic Iranian form of kingship, right? For example, the, the Buyids uh, employ the title Shah and Shah. Uh, in a way that the Samanids don't. Uh, so there's not a lot that the Abbasids could really do about uh, controlling this frontier uh, without a group like the Samanids. That being said, uh, the Samanids did use, uh, you know, in their kind of political uh, uh, imagining of themselves, uh, this claim to be uh, uh, supported and authorized by the Abbasids, uh, you know, as part of their, their kind of propaganda. Uh, so they would recognize the Abbasids uh, in their, uh, you know, uh, when it was uh, appropriate, um, they would maybe occasionally send some tribute back, but nothing quite like regular uh, taxation. Um, and they would at times claim to be acting in the Abbasids authority. Uh, but really at that point, uh, it's kind of meaningless. Uh, the Abbasids didn't have much of anything uh, to offer uh, by way of, of, of support. And so when the, the Karakhanids finally um, capture a great part of the, the former Samanid Empire, um, you mentioned that the, the border itself, the frontier um, collapses. What, what happens? I mean, surely there has to be a new balance that emerges. What does that look like? Well, temporarily, the, the, the frontier goes back to the Oxus, um, with the Karakhanids ruling uh, in Transoxiana and the Ghaznavids ruling uh, below that uh, in Khorasan and, and Tokharistan. Uh, but by that point, it's kind of the, the, the movement on the frontier has shifted direction, uh, that uh, it is no longer uh, the caliphate or representatives of an empire uh, whose heart is in kind of greater Iran, uh, pushing further out into Central Asia. It is now, uh, uh, you know, political uh, organizations that are forming on the steppe that are pushing south. Uh, so uh, the Karakhanids and Ghaznavids will be uh, uh, removed by the Seljuks, uh, as I mentioned before. Uh, and and from here on out, that's the kind of uh, trajectory that has changed. So the, the um, you know, the, the, the flow on the frontier of, of political and military authority has, has switched uh, direction. And so if we, if we consider um, everything that, that we've kind of discussed in the last uh, half hour or so, um, I want to bring this back to the, the kind of point of the book, which is about um, the geographical nature of, of this region, uh, the ethno-linguistic nature of this region, and and coming back to that word "shatter zone." So, what all, you know? What kind of takeaway should the should the reader get when they're reading this book? And I'm wondering what this tells us um, about frontiers in general, or if we can say something more conclusive about Central Asia, um, especially as we look at this kind of span of, of five or six centuries of of frontier. Uh, I think the biggest takeaway is that uh, we should be very wary about any kind of uh, simplistic uh, narrative of uh, the Arab Islamic conquests. Uh, anything that, that puts these, uh, you know, these events in 
for example, in binary uh, terms of, you know, for example, the, uh, you know, caliphate conquering and replacing the Sasanian Empire, um, or view it as a competition of, of Arabs versus Iranians, uh, for example. When we get to a place like Central Asia, uh, and this idea of, of the kind of shatter zone, an area where you have uh, a lot of regions that are uh, uh, internally divided, that are difficult to access, uh, that are in a lot of ways disconnected from each other, um, that diversity uh, is seen even more clearly and, and, and the preservation of it is seen even more clearly. Uh, so that these identities that really even the, the medieval chroniclers, uh, you know, kind of lump everyone together as, uh, you know, Turks, for example, uh, I think they're in, in the Great Chronicle of Tabari, there's, I, think, I believe, one reference to Hephthalites, even though we know a lot of times when he's saying Turk, uh, he means uh, a Hephthalite. Uh, that, uh, uh, you know, these groups were able to uh, kind of survive and that their impact on the development of, uh, you know, uh, a kind of Islamic Central Asian uh, culture, identity, political uh, uh, structure uh, is, is very meaningful, right? And we shouldn't uh, just think about this as a single narrative, but a bunch of smaller narratives uh, that uh, each had their own kind of timeline and trajectory uh, and results. And so now um, we're nearing the end of the, the, the interview. Uh, we've taken up quite a bit of your time, but I wanted to ask, you know, one more question. Um, now that you have this kind of framework to work on, Looking at the Eastern Frontier, um, are you going to continue this project or um, do you have any other research projects in mind? Um, well, I think uh, I'm never going to fully walk away from uh, uh, this frontier. And I have uh, a number of things coming out and projects that are working on different aspects of this that maybe uh, couldn't fit entirely in the book. So for example, I've got a couple pieces coming out where I'm looking a little bit to the west, to the area of Tabaristan, uh, which is just to the south of the uh, uh, Caspian Sea uh, and shared a lot of kind of similar issues and history with uh, early Islamic Khorasan. Uh, but as far as my next big project, my next major project, uh, while I was working on this, I got very interested in questions of how these narratives of the Islamic conquests uh, you know, came to be, came to be recorded, came to be structured uh, the way they are. And uh, some that, that really uh, were important to me or, or, or you know, kind of uh, impacted me uh, were the stories of characters like Abdullah ibn Qasim and his son Musa, uh, which I would categorize as kind of adventure stories. Uh, these were accounts that compared to other aspects of the conquest, uh, there were more detail. There was more kind of life to them. Uh, there was a sense of you know adventure uh, uh, to them. Uh, if you go through and, and, for example, read the accounts of uh, Musa going into Transoxiana and going to Bukhara and Samarkand and these places looking for help, uh, they're 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 very exciting uh, stories to read compared to what you find in, in most of the rest of the conquest literature. So uh, my current project is to kind of look at some of these uh, uh, tales, study how they were kind of transmitted, uh, where they're coming from, how they end up in the, the text where um, they have been preserved, uh, and really think about the message they are, are constructing. And, and right now I'm, I'm looking at this more so uh, uh, thinking about how images of like masculinity are constructed in the um, uh, medieval Arabic chronicles, uh, how uh, the ideals of, say, uh, heroes and villains uh, are constructed, because uh, these figures in particular uh, go back and forth from being you know, important uh, uh, figures who conquered important places in the name of the caliphate, and then turn into rebels who are turned on their fellow Arabs and, and run away, run off uh, beyond the reach of the, the caliphate. Um, so that's that's the project I'm going on now is getting into more of a kind of historiographical uh, uh, project for the time being. Well, that sounds like a really fascinating project and I'm sure uh, we'll definitely look forward to seeing that. It sounds like a great compliment to the work that you've already done. Um, and Rob, I wanted to just thank you again for coming on the show today. 
and talking about your your book, which once again for the listeners is The Eastern Frontier, Limits of Empire in Late Antique and Early Medieval Central Asia, which just came out with uh, IB Taurus. So thanks again, Rob. Uh, It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Nick. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. And it was a pleasure talking with you.